Amen. Amen. Thanks to the worship team and the production team. Many of them got here early in the morning. So can you give them a round of applause for getting us here on this field today and getting ready? So glad. Gospel City Kids, let me hear you shout if you're in the house today. Go ahead. All right. You guys are doing great. I, I love seeing you worship. Oh, man. People in the back are fired up. That's great. And I, you've been doing so good. I'm going to do my best to preach God's word to you, and I hope that you can hang, hang with me for a few moments. But thanks for being here. Isn't it something special to have every generation of our church represented on one field this morning? That is a beautiful picture. What a joy and honor it is to all be in one space. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 133. And hopefully you were tracking through summer in the Psalms and you've enjoyed the last seven weeks as we've heard from different speakers. And uh, man, the Psalms are so encouraging. They're so timely. I've heard from many of you that they met you uh, in a specific way. And Psalm 133 is this short Psalm of Ascent. So the Psalm of Ascent's are found in chapters 120 through 134. And these were songs sung by the people of God as they traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals. And so as they traveled to worship in the congregation at Jerusalem, these songs accompanied them and built their anticipation. Psalm 133 is the second to last in the Psalms of Ascent, and it's attributed to King David. So the big idea that I want to give to you this morning as we've gathered here on this field is this. Our unity today is a rehearsal for the glorious unity that is to come. Our unity today here on this field is just a glorious uh, rehearsal for the glorious unity that is to come when Christ returns. And so I want you to get your eyes on a copy of Psalm 133. We're going to allow his word to speak over us as we begin, and then we will unpack it together. Psalm 133, everyone take a deep breath together. One, two, three. <gasps> now hear the word of the Lord. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, it was a year ago uh, this day that we had just finished an eight-week series called We Are Family, and that led into a year that we've themed We Are Family. And the series that we were going through, we were looking at what the church actually is according to the Bible. And in studying ecclesiology, we said a few things. The first thing, we said that the church is not a building, but a people. You are the church. You are God's called out ones, the ecclesia. And so it's a great picture today as we're not confined by walls. And as you, if you think of the psalmist who said, I was glad when I went to the house of the Lord. I love this picture as I see cars pulling in and people walking over the hills and walking from all distances to gather in this place. How good and pleasant it is when we gather together in the local body. You are the church. We also said that the church is not a country club. You can find a better one of those here in Granger. You can find a place that will feed you and that will wait on you hand and foot and will make you feel really comfortable and you can get manicures and pedicures. That's not what the church is for. 
Uh, This is a place where we come and gather together and we sacrifice in the family of God. The church is also not a place of entertainment. This is a participation gathering, not a spectator gathering. And as the people of God come together, we collectively give our attention to Jesus Christ in worship and honor. That is the church. And we've been saying this, the church is not a landing strip, but it's a launching pad. It's why we talk so much about living sin as we went through the book of Acts. And your mindset as a believer should not be, ugh, I endured the world all week and made it to my safe place on Sunday. Sometimes it feels that way, and sometimes the world is indeed broken, and you get here, and this is indeed a rescue mission for your soul. But the believer's mindset should be, man, I lived out the gospel and made much of Jesus all week long, and today I get to be filled back up and sent back up into a world that desperately needs the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is why at Gospel City, we often say that we are a city within a city. Just look around you for a moment. It's pretty impressive what God can do. God can take a lot of people who would probably never hang out, never rub shoulders, never cross paths, and he can give you a new name, and he can change your destination, and he can set your feet on a solid rock, and he can unite you together as brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, that is something. So if Jesus has changed your life, your address might be here in Granger, or it might be in Niles, or Mishawaka, or South Bend, or Edwardsburg, but you have been joined to a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's what Jesus says about the church. Its light shines so bright that it cannot be hidden. You are the salt and you are the light of the world. You are God's citizens called out of darkness into his marvelous light that you might proclaim the excellencies of his name. So we, this impressive amount of people, are living in the cities of man, but we have been called out to live the distinctions of the kingdom of God. It's not, what, it's, it's, it's not simply that we're a city within a city, but we also say that we are a city sent to the city. The message of Jesus is simply too great for you to leave here on this field today. It's too life-changing for you to simply be nominal in your faith or complacent in your faith. If Jesus has truly changed your life, then you can't help but tell others about it. You can't help but want more of it. You can't help but get in environments where you will continue to grow up into Christ, where you will deepen your doctrine and your understanding and learn to delight in the law of the Lord and become a disciple that glorifies God and gathers with God's people and grows up into Christ and goes with your faith. Because of what Jesus is doing in your life, you should be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans, I am unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe. And if Christ has truly changed you, you will see your home and your neighbors and your co-workers and your classmates and your city as a mission field. And you'll take the message of Jesus with you from this place every week. Absolutely, it's going to be hard. Absolutely, it's going to test your faith. Absolutely, you're going to come across people who want nothing to do with the message of Jesus. But because of God's grace in your life, you can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the reason he could say that is because he had his hopes set on the eternity of heaven. 
The third thing that we often say that we are at Gospel City is we are a city longing for a better city. When Christ changes your life, you start living for a new destination. And when heaven becomes your future, there is hope for tomorrow when everything seems to be falling apart. And as the people of God, we take heart in this truth that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. I was thinking of that old song, When We All Get to Heaven. Would you lift your voice with that song across this field if you know that your future destiny is secure in Jesus Christ? Come on, lift it up. And when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. You sing. And when we all see Jesus, We'll sing and shout the victory. Come on, one more time. No microphone. When we all get to. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Do you hear the harmony and the unison and the unity as the people of God sing of their future homeland together? Today truly is a small and imperfect glimpse of what is to come for the believer. And the reason that I give you this lengthy intro talking about the culture and the DNA of our church is because of the first word that you see in Psalm chapter 133, when David writes, Behold, to behold is to stop and to take notice, to stare at with admiration, to gaze upon, to observe, to set your eyes on. To behold is certainly not to miss it. And yet, if I'm being honest, sometimes we really stink at beholding the good things that God has called us to behold, at stopping and noticing the goodness of God that is all around us. If you're like me, you are prone to forget. And this has been a problem throughout all of history, especially with the Israelites. Maybe you easily forget your status with God and the truth that he has called you to love others more than yourself. Maybe you forget the way that God met you last Sunday only to step right back into the counsel of the wicked on Monday when you leave this place. Maybe you forgot the first days when you were united to a family of God and were once thankful for the people around you and now you find yourself annoyed or jealous or gossiping about others. Maybe you're prone to getting your eyes onto things that aren't ideal or things that you might do differently or things that would make you feel better or things that you fill in the blank. But David in Psalm 133, he starts out by saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I want to give you three points today as we look through Psalm 133. The first of which is this. Unity is always worth fighting for. Unity is always worth fighting for. Understand that unity does not come natural to us as human beings. That was going to be my first point. You could write it as a sub point. But as David is directing God's people with the truth of this psalm, much of his life was surrounded by disunity rather than unity. So it's all the more it shows the real unity can only come from God. 
But we've seen this to be true in David's writing. If you read through the Psalms, you saw that many of these Psalms, David is writing imprecatory prayers. David is writing Psalms of repentance uh, because of the disunity that surrounded his life, not the unity that he's calling us to behold in Psalm 133. And much of this disunity in David's life, he caused for himself. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet David allowed the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh and the pride of his life to get the best of him in more ways than one. That should be an encouragement to everyone on the field today that God can use you despite your sinfulness. God can use you despite your wicked heart. But let me just remind you about some of this disunity that David caused. He got into a physical relationship with a woman that was not his wife. He lied by having Uriah, who was the husband, come home from battle, one of David's men. He tried to cover it up by sending him to be with Bathsheba. He was a man of honor, so he wouldn't do that, wouldn't leave his men on the battlefield. So David sends him back to the battle. And rather than Uriah being in the position of authority where he would find himself, David moved him to the front lines of the battle to have him ultimately killed as the battle got started. I mean, David caused a lot of disunity. And because of David's personal sin, he had a lot of consequences in his life. And the same is true for you and me. If we sin, we will reap the consequences that come with sinfulness. And the consequences for David came in the form of disunity. King Saul was seeking to kill him, but David had some sons. Amnon caused heartache in the family and was eventually killed. Absalom tried to kill his father and overthrow his kingdom. Adonijah tried to steal the kingdom from Solomon. David had so much disunity and personal pain surrounding disunity. Yet here in Psalm 133, David pens for the people, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He certainly wasn't beholding the brother's unity that he brought into the world. David must have been thinking of moments like this. Moments when he gathered with the people of God in the temple. Moments of worship that led him to write Psalm 84 where he says, How good and pleasant, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. David must have been remembering the time that they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. And as the presence of God was ushered into the city, David danced without dignity in the streets as joy overflowed from his life. He must have been remembering moments like that, but I also think David was being a good worship leader in Psalm 133. He was pointing himself and the Israelites to the Lord. He was pointing to a reality that is to come more than the reality that he was facing currently. The Psalm of Ascent helped weary, worn-down travelers anticipate the presence of God at Zion. And the pursuit of unity for us today should cause our wandering, rivalry-driven hearts to look to Jesus, to find satisfaction in Him, and to love others as Christ has loved us. This is how we fight for unity. So I want to give you three ways as the family of God here at Gospel City that we would fight for unity. Three ways. First, tune your heart to Christ every day. Tune your heart to Jesus Christ every day. Jesus is the only way to help you find the kind of unity that only God can give to sinful, broken people. 
And Satan wants to think you to think opposite this morning. Satan wants you to feel lesser than in the body of Christ. Satan wants to prey on your desire to be in this group or that group of people. Satan wants you to feel like you're being left out. Satan wants you to feel like your small group is not good enough. Satan wants you to be so focused on unity that you take your eyes off of Jesus, who is the only hope for unity in your life. I was thinking of this great quote from A.W. Tozer as my mind was drawn to Psalm 133. Listen to this quote. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? Satan wants you to think the opposite of that. Satan wants you to think that, oh, I have to look at this. I have to strive for this. And what we have to do is continually get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own feelings and onto Jesus Christ. Satan wants infighting to happen in the church. Satan wants there to be jealousy among us. Satan wants there to be rivalry among us and gossiping among us. But God's word reminds us to always look to Jesus and to tune our hearts to Jesus, and to take all of our disappointments to Jesus. And when you tune your heart to Christ, you will love others as Christ has loved you. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another and keep my commandments. So the second way that we fight for unity here is this. Count others as better than yourself. This is Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So to fight for unity in the family of God, it takes humble people. There's a lot of people on this field. I bet that a lot of us struggle with pride in our lives. You could probably raise your hand pretty quickly. But humble people aren't afraid to show others their weakness. And humble people use what they have as a means of generosity in the body. And humble people aren't afraid to ask for help when they need help. And humble people look out for what blesses others over what blesses them. And all of these things produce unity in the family of God. The third way that we fight for unity is to forgive even when it's hard. You are never more like Christ than when you choose to forgive. And because we as humans are prone to getting our eyes off of Jesus, we are prone to getting untuned. Therefore, we need forgiveness in our lives and in our relationships. I have to believe that on a field of people this size, there are people here today that need to seek forgiveness from one another. When I bring up the word forgiveness, if somebody pops into your mind, that may be a person that you need to go to and seek forgiveness from, seek reconciliation from. And what a beautiful place to do it. As the local family of God gather together and as we continue to pursue the kind of unity that brings glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is a rehearsal for what is to come. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. 
aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So unity is always worth fighting for. Point number two this morning is this. Unity produces wonderful results. I want you to look at verses 2 and into 3 of Psalm 133. It says, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron, the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robe. So Psalm 133 starts out really strong, then it gets a little weird. You're probably wondering, like, Maybe you have a picture of a really hairy guy getting olive oil dumped all over his head and it running down his face. That's not good and pleasant. That sounds kind of gross. And yet what, what this is talking about is the priesthood restored. As the Davidic kingdom was under siege, you saw that in Psalm 70, Psalm 74, Psalm 89, the Davidic kingdom is done away with. In Psalm 133, it anticipates a new day when a new temple would be resurrected and a new mediator would be anointed between God and man. The anointing of the priest was good and pleasant because it was the priest that would orchestrate times of worship and would speak to God on behalf of the people. If you didn't have a way to speak to God, to Yahweh, that's a pretty detrimental thing. And so with the priest restored, how good and pleasant it is when the people of God have a priest that can speak on their behalf to Yahweh. And of course, the priesthood was restored and fulfilled in our high priest, Jesus Christ, who is between us and God right now, and he takes our offerings and our sacrifice and our prayers and our songs, and he offers them. He receives them in their imperfection, and through his blood and through his perfection, he offers them holy and acceptable to God. How good and pleasant it is when the priesthood is restored. And then he talks about the dew of Hermon. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. It's really saying that unity is like a well-watered and nourished land. There is no dry and thirsty land like our forefathers had endured. The unity of brothers dwelling together is like a land that yields nourishment for vegetation and for food and flocks and herds. And the people don't face famine, but they face plentiful bounty. Brothers dwelling in unity is like the priesthood restored and a well-nourished land. That's what David likened the unity of brothers dwelling together to. But I believe that we have seen God do so many things in our body that promote the kind of unity, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I was thinking about it this week. What has unity done to further forge our family over the last year here at Gospel City Church? Uh, we studied through and grew through the book of Acts together and the origin of the church, I think that in God's providence, it was a beautiful thing to study verse by verse the book of Acts in a year whenever we've had so many new people come to our family in a year where you had young pastors stepping up and beginning to unpack God's word. What a gift it was from God to unpack the history of the church and what this thing is meant to look like and what we're supposed to do as the people of God who rely on the power of God. We sent off our founding pastor, Trent Griffith, to Family Life Ministries. Something like that, something that big could cause some disunity. But I believe we have seen unity in the body of Christ here at Gospel City. Our elders, a great representation of brothers who dwell in unity, they led us through a transition. They communicated to you. 
They modeled a culture of plurality and leadership. They prayed and listened and discerned and prayed again and listened and discerned again. And they did it so well. Would you give your elders a hand clap around the place today for leading you and loving you? And I would encourage you, if you see one of them today, stop and tell them how thankful you are for their leadership. There could be a lot of room for disunity in a group like that. And yet I believe we have seen unity come as they continue to lead and continue to move. We installed a new lead pastor. I can't speak very highly of the guy they chose, but it happened. We, we got the gospel out on Easter Sunday to 2,500 plus people and saw several respond to Jesus for the first time. We launched core classes and hope for marriage and parenting to further deepen our doctrine and grow our theology in Christ. I've seen students saved. I've seen kids memorizing scripture. I've seen small groups serving and young adults growing through intentional accountability. We've seen missionaries and church plants encouraged, prayed for, and living sent. All of these things Satan doesn't want to happen. All of these things could lead to infighting or disunity in the body of Christ. But behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like all of this fruit that we've seen here at Gospel City. And it is like the body gathered on this field this morning, lifting high the name of Jesus and devoting yourselves to the teaching and the preaching of God's word. Look at what the Lord has done. It is marvelous in our eyes. Unity produces wonderful results. Now, point number three this morning is this. Unity today pulls the curtain back on what is to come. Unity today pulls the curtain back on what is to come. As David wraps up in verse 3, he says, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This statement makes the future hope and anticipation of God's people explicit for us. Yahweh has commanded and ordained that his people will dwell in his presence forever enjoying his goodness under the reign of his king forever, and nothing can stop it, not even death itself. The Israelites longed and hoped for a Messiah who would come and restore their fortunes and be their high and holy priest. And the Israelites marveled at the unity they could have as they gathered for the festivals to seek Yahweh together, but they knew it was only a glimpse or a rehearsal of the unity that they would experience one day. And guess what, Gospel City family? Jesus came. And the beauty and the power of the gospel is on display in our lives. It's on display in our church. It can be on display in our community. Jesus showed us that unity is worth fighting for. Jesus left the perfection of heaven to seek and to save the lost. Jesus never judged someone of another class or because of their sin that they brought to the table. In fact, he befriended them and he took their sin and shame off of them. And Jesus wants to do the same thing for you today so that you can find the unity that only comes from Jesus Christ. Not only did he show us that unity was worth fighting for, but Jesus showed us the wonderful results that come from the unity 
as he was anointed as chief mediator between God and man through death on a cross. And what looked like disunity and death ultimately brought unity and life for all who would call upon his name. Jesus, tempted and tried, just as you and I, brought before Pontius Pilate, brought before the Romans, accused of his own people, the Jews, never did anything wrong, and yet he was brutally beaten and despised and spit upon and rejected and mocked and nailed to a cross so that he could unify us to a body that he would begin building together, and he is the head of that body. Jesus started something so significant that will find true fulfillment when he comes again. He became the head of a body that he would unite to himself and unite to one another, and it is called the church. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, but 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says this, It is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Hear it again. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. David says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And as you look around this field, today is something to behold, but today is only pulling back the curtain of the unity that is to come. And nothing will compare to the day when the people of God are welcomed into the city of God. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will stand in the glorious presence of the Lamb and God will rejoice over them with loud singing. Imagine that day when you stand before your Maker. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, He will rejoice over you with loud singing. We have some decent singing today. I can't imagine the singing that will come from God over me as He overflows with the joy of me being in His presence. I mean, that should give you a posture of worship today. That should cause you to stand in awe today that God cares about you that much. God loves you that much that he would rejoice at the thought of being in your presence so I gotta ask where do you think we should go from here as gospel city I first want to talk to those who need to surrender their life to Jesus Christ every person here today on this field this gathering uh, this unity, being present at this place, singing these songs, showing up for church week after week, that will not get you into heaven. That does not get you a relationship with the God of glory. You desperately need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And he is the only way to find the kind of unity that David speaks of today, a unity that will last for all of eternity, a unity with God and with sinful man. And the power of the gospel is first recognizing that God is truly existing and God truly is holy. God truly is creator. Therefore, he has the rights. And the bad news is this. 
Every person on this field is sinful and broken. We fall so short of the glory of God. If he demands perfection, we can't give perfection on our best day. Some of us try. Some of us try to earn that kind of favor with God. It can't be done. That's what scripture says. But if God is holy and if man is sinful, that feels hopeless, and yet God is also love. And in his love, God sent Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to come and live that sinless, perfect life, to never do anything wrong. He was born of a woman, but he was born of God. The blood that flowed through his veins was innocent and spotless and perfect and undefiled. And Jesus took his life to the cross. And he let sinful mankind spit on him, accuse him, reject him, mock him. And Jesus died on a cross in our place as a substitute for our sins. And he was buried with the wicked, but three days later he rose again from the grave, defeating death, defeating the grave, defeating our sins so that one day we could have the blessing that David speaks of life forevermore and be unified to God. That's the power of the gospel. But there's one more part. You must repent and believe. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to say it. It's not enough to casually believe it. You have to call upon Jesus. You have to repent of your sin and believe in your heart that Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead. Scripture says it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confessing it with your mouth looks like calling him king, calling him Lord, saying, I don't want to live for the passions of my flesh anymore. I want to follow Jesus and I'm going to tell him, but I'm going to tell somebody else and I'm going to start to learn what it looks like to grow in Christ and follow him. I got to believe that there are some people on this field today who have wrestled with that decision. If you're here today and you've never put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity. This might be a little radical. I just sense the Spirit asking me to give you the opportunity. Would you, if, if, if that's you, if you want to step into this thing and learn more of this thing, and you want to say, for the first time, I'm going to repent and believe and follow Christ. Would you stand to your feet somewhere on this field? Would you do it? here today and you think, man, I, I want to live in the power of the gospel. I want to live out this faith that we talk about so often, but I know that I tend to come here and step back into the world and I live on sway so easily, but I'd like to rededicate my life. Would you stand to your feet around this field? Anybody? Amen. A 
I'll tell you what, there's going to be some elders and pastors who go back to this white tent. And I want to invite anyone that is standing or anyone that didn't stand and wants to surrender your life to Christ. You can go back to that white tent. There's some elders and pastors there. They would love to put a Bible in your hand. They'd love to answer some questions for you. They'd love to talk to you about the gospel, which is the most important decision you could ever make to follow Jesus Christ. And so I'd invite you even to go now if that's you. And they'll be there through the remainder of the service. We're going to have baptisms later. Maybe you've been teetering on the decision of like, I need to take the step of obedience. I need to get baptized. Uh, If that's you, go back to that tent. They would love to help you discern whether today's a good day for you to share your testimony and be baptized. We have like 17 lined up for later. Would love to have more. And so if you know you need to take that step of obedience, you can move to that white tent as we close out this service. But for the rest of the people here today, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And remember that with Christ, this can be forever more. So if the Psalms wanted to communicate anything to us as Gospel City Church in Summer in the Psalms, Psalm 1 wanted to say, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of of scoffers. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So let's be a people who delight in the law of the Lord. But I want to turn your attention to Psalm chapter 150. You stand with me. And this is the last thing. We want to be a people who delight in the law of the Lord, but we also want to be a people of praise. And Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. And praise him with sounding cymbals, with loud flashing cymbals. And let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Would you lift your hands and shout for joy to God, for he is worthy. He is worthy. Now come on, let everything that has breath praise the Lord this morning. Here we